happening, right, is that if Christianity is true, why don't so many more people believe it? Well, Richard Dawkins, uh, he's a famous atheist. He was once asked, if you died and you arrived at the gates of heaven, what would you say to God to justify your lifetime of atheism? He replied, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. Well, how we approach God has changed over the years. You're familiar with C.S. Lewis. He did the whole Narnia series, but he wrote a lesser-known book called God in the Dock. And the dock is a British courtroom term, okay? C.S. Lewis was from England, and so he calls it God in the dock because the dock is that witness box that you get shut up in when you have to provide a defense, okay? And so you're the accused, you are the defendant. And the premise of the book is really fantastic. C.S. Lewis argues that before 1940s, this is when he wrote it, right, the ancient man, right, who they used to be, approached God or the gods as the accused person approaches the judge. So before 1940, everybody kind of approached God or the gods as mankind is the accused. We're in the box. We're going to be judged. And God is the judge. And we have to give an account to him. That's how it used to be. But the modern man, C.S. Lewis says, the roles are reversed. Man is the judge and God is on trial. God is in the dock. God has to give a defense. Let me put it to you in Lewis's words. Speaking of mankind, he says this about us. We are a quite kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable, able defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, and disease, we're ready to listen. I mean, the trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the most important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. It's pretty well said. I think we can relate to that. If we think about God at all, we tend to think of him in terms of making an assessment of how well this purported God is doing. From this vantage point, we are the ones assessing God. God is not making an assessment of us. He is the accused. He is the defendant. We are the prosecuting attorney. So normally when we wake up and we think about God as a non-Christian, we think this. If he's there, when I go and meet him, I plan on having a long discussion with him. In the words of Ricky Ricardo from I Love Lucy, God, you have some explaining to do. If you don't know I Love Lucy, <laughs> raise your hand if you do. All right, young people, go and talk to them. This is going to be a good opportunity. It's a black and white show. Okay, but Lucy, you have some explaining to do. Same idea when it comes to God. Well, in John 5, verses 30 through 47, Jesus is in the dock. He is the accused. He's going to have to defend himself. And can I just remind you of how we got there? Why is Jesus in the dock? Well, in John 5, we've been there now. This is our third Sunday in a row, moving at a lightning pace. We want to remind ourselves we're in Jerusalem. We're at the Pool of Bethesda. This is a big area about the size of a football field, okay? But we find ourselves in the grim part of town. For verse 3 tells us it is swarming with suffering. Verse 3 says, In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. 
multitude. So out of the masses, the camera zooms in on one single man who's been there for 38 years as an invalid. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now I'm going to ask you to keep that question in mind for the whole sermon. Do you want to be healed? Well, Jesus does heal the man, but here's the punchline. He heals him on the Sabbath. And when Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders start to question Jesus. And this is how Jesus deals with their question. He pokes him in the eye. <laughs> Jesus does not sweep anything under the rug. He forces the issue to be clear. And he says in verse 17, you want to know why I can work on the Sabbath? Well, my father is working till now, and I am working. Jesus makes extraordinary claims. And extraordinary claims demand extraordinary evidence. For saying it is one thing, but proving it is another. And so this morning we're going to see that extraordinary evidence is given for you to believe Jesus' extraordinary claims. We're going to start with his, evidence, or his claims and then his evidence. May I please? Um... Go to the mall, ask who do you think Jesus is, get all kinds of fun answers. But who does Jesus say that he is? That's just a good question for you to consider. What are his claims about himself? Verse 17 says that his father is working until now and that he's working. Verse 18, the Jews interpret that correctly. He makes himself equal with God. So he's claiming to be equal with God. Verse 19, he says the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. The Son gives life in verse 21, and in verse 22, God has given the Son all judgment. So who does Jesus say that he is? He claims to be God, claims to be doing the work that only God can do, which is giving life, and that ultimately, when every single human being meets him beyond the grave, he will be their judge. That's his claim. Our research is done. He is no less than God. Jesus did not make himself God. He made himself man. That's the only thing that he did different. And he entered this world as a creator. He came early to give you life so that before you meet him as your judge, you can already receive life that he has to give. Because one day, everybody will meet him 
as their judge. That's his extraordinary claims. Let's now move into his evidence. Now, when somebody makes claims like that that are very strong, uh, I think that you guys would say, wow, Josh, if you made claims that you were God and you could do God's work of giving life and that one day you're going to judge the whole world, you'd probably look at me and say, you're a lunatic. And you'd be quite right. <coughs> you'd want to say, Josh, where's the evidence? And what I love about the Bible, especially if you're here as someone who's new and trying to understand the Bible, what I love about the Bible and the teaching of Jesus is that it is so linear, it is logical. Jesus is anticipating your questions. He wants to give you answers to the questions you are asking immediately. Jesus wants to give you evidence, evidence for his claims so that you will come to believe that he is the Christ. So what we have that happens next is that Jesus moves from behind the defense table, and he becomes his own legal counsel. It is as if Jesus invokes our Sixth Amendment. He provides his own legal counsel, he squirms out from behind the table, and he calls his own witnesses, knowing that his own personal witness would be ridiculous to win the day. I'm God because I say so. That, that's, that's not going to win. Look at verses 30 through 31. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. But if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He knows that he just can't get up there and just make these claims and say, believe me, because I said so. So Jesus is going to bring witnesses up, hoping to convince you, the jury, that his claims that he is God and that he alone is able to do the work that God alone does, imparting life and giving judgment, are works that he can do. And when you picture it that way, that we are in the middle of a courtroom case, this text is really fascinating. He is making extraordinary claims, and then from 30 to 47, he is in the dock. Jesus himself has put himself in the dock, having to defend, having to provide testimony, having to give you evidence to back up his claims. Jesus is on the witness stand, and he has to defend that God is at work in him and through him. And he runs through three key pillars of evidence. Evidence that you could believe his claims. Here they are. They're very simple. The first one is he calls a character witness of John the Baptist, verses 33 through 35. He says, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus knows his audience, and the Jews knew all about John the Baptist. They went out to hear him in droves, and they all liked John for a while, right? I mean, he was a national figure, and Jesus is saying, you thought he was credible. Like, you listened to him, you trusted his words, and so I'm going to let him speak in hopes that he will convince you that my claims are true. What an astute self-defender Jesus is, right? I, I don't know what you make of John the Baptist, but the data we have from Josephus and from the records here in the gospel is that John the Baptist is the witness. He should be called John the witness, not John the Baptist, okay? Go back and read John 1. He gives credence to Jesus' claims because John the Baptist always told the truth. No fear of man with this guy. It is because he told the truth that he lost his head years later. 
So if you want to listen to this guy who is credible, he will speak of me, and hopefully that will convince you. Jesus calls an extraordinary character witness for his extraordinary claims. And Jesus says, if you listen to him, you will be saved. Now, I, I just want to stop there in my study and say, man, who needs saving? You would think it would be Jesus at this point. He's in the dock. He's the accused. He's having to defend himself. But Jesus says, no, I don't need saving. You need saving. Because your judgment of me will determine my judgment of you. Your opinion of me is going to determine my opinion of you. And the roles are going to be reversed. You think you're the judge now. But one day the roles will be reversed and I will be the judge and my verdict matters. And Jesus, notice this, wants to save them. What a great God. He wants to save them. He is patiently pointing his prosecutors, right, to a witness that they like, that they actually might realize the truth of what he says so they will be saved. What patience. What love. To say, you already like him. Listen to him. It's for your good. Then he takes John the Baptist off the stand. He's going to continue building his case. The case gets more weighty as time goes on. He doesn't put his best witness first. And they would be surprised by that. Put yourself in first century Jewish sandals. They're like, what? There's someone greater than John the Baptist? Jesus says, yes, there is. I got some works. So he's going to provide a character witness first in John. Second, evidentiary witness of his own personal works. Look at verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. <gasps> For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, they bear witness about me. The Father has sent me. You want to know that I'm from God? Look at the works. Look at the works. In this immediate context, the miracle would have been healing a guy who has been paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years as an invalid, unable to move. Jesus says, get up, take up, and walk. And the man gets up, takes up, and walks. This is not David Blaine. This is not David Copperfield. Okay? This is not Penn and Teller or whoever your favorite magician is. This is not the Carbonero effect. Okay? Uh, this is not an illusion, not a sleight of hand. This is done publicly. Publicly witnessed, openly reported, even by his enemies in a small town where everybody would be able to affirm this actually happened. In the same section we have in John 6, we're going to look at next week as Pastor Pat preaches, 5,000 men are fed, not including women and children. We have Jesus walking on water, Jesus healing a man in John 9 who has been born blind. That is creating sight. In this whole gospel, Jesus turns water into wine in John 2. And then in John 11, he raises a man who has been dead for three days. Evidence, 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 public. And all of that evidentiary work that Jesus stacks up here is all the works that they expected the Messiah to do based upon their scriptures. There's no curveball here. They should have been able to see that the lame are walking and the blind are seeing, and those were all the things that Isaiah predicted would happen when the Messiah comes. So my non-Christian friend, what evidence would it take for you 
to believe Christ's claims. I always have heard, many times here, that if I saw a miracle, I would believe. Really? Really? Do you think truth is always self-evident? Do you think truth is always self-evident? That's a dangerous assumption that you are making, right? You are assuming that you will always see all the time what is true and that all you really need to know you will see. And you know that's not true. That's why you go to the doctors. They might see something that you don't. That's why you ask for financial advice. Because you know that there are very important things in your life that might be true, but might not be obvious to you. So the real question here is, whose opinion do you trust? Whose opinion do you respect? Your friends? Family? A parent? Teacher? Author? Jesus knew who the Jews respected, whose opinion was weighty for them, and it's the scriptures. So Jesus turns from his works to the word of God. It's his final piece of evidence, right? It's not just a character witness of John, not just the evidentiary witness of his works. He turns now to the Father's word. He says he has God on his side based on the scriptures. Look at 37 through 39. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. The case for his defense is building. Jesus has produced a character witness of John the Baptist, evidentiary witness of his miraculous works, and now he produces documentary evidence of the Father's word. Now, this is not just a letter from mom and dad. My son would never do that. Okay, that would be rejected in the court, okay? That's not what this is, okay? Think of it this way. If you were able to have scientific studies done, and they have been tested and tried, and it has been taken years for it to happen, and it is known in the, in the medical world that that scientific journal is true, and everybody holds those truths as self-evident, and you bring in that journal by those famous scholars, that would be admissible in court. Okay, And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. These documents are admissible because for centuries, a very long history, the Jews have been holding these things to be true. So Jesus says, members of the jury, I bring before you as my final witness the law, the prophets, the writings, the very documents you have studied. The very documents that you have memorized, the very documents that you quote, that you are experts in, catch this, Jesus says the very documents you want to use against me, those very documents are the ones that testify about me. My non-Christian friend, Jesus submits this documentary evidence to you, the jury, so that you will know that Jesus did not appear out of the blue. Jesus is not a rabbit out of a hat, right? He did not come just out of nowhere. He was anticipated. He was expected. He was predicted, okay? He was announced for over 2,000 years, and therefore, when he comes, we know who he is and why he has come. I could take you to the first book of the Bible, 
Second book of the Bible, the Psalms, the prophets, again and again and again, we could show you where he will be born, how he will be born. We could show you how he will live, that he will be born of the tribe of Judah. We could talk about his crucifixion, his death, even his resurrection from the Old Testament. All of those things. This is extraordinary documentary evidence to back up his extraordinary claims that he is God. Well, Peter Kreft is a philosopher at Boston College, and he says this. If you calculate the probability of any one person fulfilling sheerly by chance all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it would be as astronomical as winning the lottery every day for a century. He goes on to say, even if Jesus deliberately tried to fulfill the prophecies, no mere man could have the power to arrange the time, place, events, and circumstances of his birth, or even those things after his death. End of quote. The evidence is compelling. But the Messiah recognition experts, they flat out reject the evidence. They refuse to believe. Look at verse 40. It sums up their response. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Faith family, here's an application for you. Praise God for how faithful is Jesus to tell the truth, even to those who had no desire to hear what he was telling them. Faith family, we're called to be a people that tell the truth even to those who have no desire to hear it. Does your witness in the world depend upon the probability of how likely they are to receive it? Remember again, Jesus asked this question at the par- to the paralytic by the pool. Do you want to be healed? Well, what was the answer? Of, of course. Who wouldn't want to reverse that curse, right? But now we see why Jesus asked that question. The evidence for Jesus is crystal clear, right? There are multiple authoritative witnesses that they would normally accept. Life is being offered to anyone who will accept it. So why this ridiculous refusal? When is proof, or when is enough proof enough, right? What lies behind their unbelief? In verses 40 through 47, the roles are turned and Jesus becomes the exposer. He gets out of the dock, and he becomes a prosecuting attorney, and he puts the whole world on trial. Now we are in the dock, and he's going to expose why we want to reject this evidence. He's going to expose the nature of unbelief, and he explains why here in verses 43 through 44. The main reason why they don't believe, they love the crowd's approval. Look at 43 through 44. I have come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? Right? That's that loving man's approval. And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. These people are more concerned about losing face than what he told the paralytic. Beware that nothing worse may happen to you. What controls them is the people's 
approval rating. Not that nothing worse may happen to them. And guess what? Our human nature hasn't changed. Our concerns for our reputation, our popularity, our acceptance, the fear what other people may think keeps us from an honest look at the evidence. Some of you are considering the claims of Christ by hearing it this morning, and you're still thinking, what would my family say if I become a Christian? i, I got to think about my career. Right now, you want me to become a Christian in this stage and age of the game in our national history? It's not too popular. You know, I still just want to live it up with the boys. They'll make fun of me if I start going to church or don't use the language they use or whatever it might be. When it comes to considering the evidence, it is concerns like those that just keep us clogging our ears and closing our eyes. My friends, you need to decide what testimony is weightier in your life. What weighs more? The testimony of your friends, your political party, your online digital world, is that weighing heavier than God's evidence here in his word? Let me just reckon with you straight up. You will not have a 100% approval rating through life. Yeah, really. I like to be liked by you. I really do. There's quite a bit of people pleasing in me, and it's been how many years now, and I still think that if I can just say it right and do it right, and Pat and I and Michael can do our to-do list, man, we're going to make every single one of you happy. I, I still get up on Monday kind of thinking that. I, I just do. And I think I'm going to get a 100% approval rating. But it's just not the way you get through life. Count on it. You will not get a 100% approval rating. So you better decide whose approval really matters. Okay? Whose testimony are you really living for? Are you living for a testimony and acceptance that is light and fleeting and trivial? Or off the testimony of witnesses that is weighty and eternal? Choose wisely. For the very thing you are hoping in will either do you in or usher you in. That's how these last verses work. Here's a lesson in verse 45. I'll say it again. The very thing you're hoping in will either do you in or usher you in. Look at verse 45. Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? I don't need to. There is one who accuses you, Moses. And check this last phrase. On whom you have set your hope. The Jews thought they could use Scripture to get Jesus in the dock. Jesus, you have some explaining to do. And the very thing they were hoping in to accuse Jesus of did not usher them in, but it actually did them in. Look at verses 46 through 47. If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Here it is. What are you setting your hope on? when you think you're going to have a long talk with God. You know, if he's there, he has some explaining to do. What do you really believe is going to allow you to put God in the dock for you to stand as judge at the bench and for him to give a defense? Maybe it's not the scriptures. That was the Jews. But I think a lot of people today think that what they're going to do to put God in the dock is their own morals. You know, God, I lived a really good life. I was better than... 
And guess what? Friends, if your hope is in your morals, your morals will be enough to accuse you on that day. Consider, who in here lives up to their own morals? Maybe you won't use your morals. Maybe you'll use your experience. God, after all I've been through, I had a really tough life, and it's because of all that I've been through that I did fill in the blank. Friends, your experience that you hope to put God in the dock over will be enough to convict you. They will not usher you in. They will do you in because have you not considered the experience of Christ as Matt prayed, beaten, smitten, afflicted, unjustly, yet not returned evil for evil, not a vile word was coming out of his mouth, and he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. Your experience will not usher you in. It will do you in. So put your hope in Jesus. He has provided extraordinary evidence for you to believe his extraordinary claims. Accept the evidence to accept his eternal life. Reject the evidence, and you reject Jesus. And the very thing you're hoping in will be enough for him to say at that day, depart from me, for I never knew you. I think it'd be apropos to just have a moment of silence she considered the weight of this text. That here they're given all of these chances to believe that they may be saved. They're turning their hearts hard and ignoring it so that they can live for the approval of man. Let's have a moment of silence. Lord, it would be a fearful thing to stand before you with the arrogance and the pride to say that you have to give a defense for how you organized our life. Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us for our pride that wants to put you in the dock when we justly stand accused and condemned what gymnastics and manipulation we have to do Uh, to make ourselves the victim and that you are the oppressor. We pray that you would open our eyes to see that we are responsible for how we've used uh, the very life you've given us, the number of days, the opportunities, the privileges. We think that you have humbled yourself to provide such evidence so clearly that we could be saved. Thank you for your patience and continuing to point people that there is evidence for who you say you are. Such kindness and compassion and patience that you uh, give us time to consider those claims. We pray that you would create life this morning by opening eyes and people would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We thank you for the way 
that you provided for us to have life so that we would not stand under your judgment. We pray that we could exalt you for all that you did to make this possible. May we sing from our hearts, all glory be to Christ. It's in him's name we pray, amen. Stand with us and sing, all glory be to Christ.